It's episode 89 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is Kit Murdoch. Hello. Hello. You are best known for Foghorn Unscripted. Yes. Tell me about Foghorn Unscripted. Everything about it. Everything. So um, we've been going five years now, five and a half years. Uh, It totally came out of me wanting to do stories like narrative improv. Um, I set up the group specifically because I wanted to tell full-length theatrical style plays. That was my aim. Um, I'd been previously working as a theatre director and I took an improv workshop just to make me a better theatre director, as you do. And within about within about three hours of the workshop, I, my brain was already going, "Oh my goodness! I see, I see the things you could do with this. You could tell honest stories. You could, you don't have to have costumes or prop or set. You can just get on with it." Um, so I think I'd decided within about four hours, I was of, of having ever done improv that I was going to set up a company. Obviously, it took me a little bit longer to actually set it up. So quite rightly, I went and did some improv first. <laughs> uh, I, I believe that's the way to do it. Um, but I think I was I was incredibly confident and naive that I could do it. Um, and I joined, so I went and joined Box of Frogs, which is um, Birmingham's kind of central point of everything. <laughs> John Trevor has a, has a huge influence on the Birmingham scene. Without him, all the groups wouldn't be there. So, yeah, and then about, I, I reckon about a year later, I set up Foghorn. So did you hold auditions or? No, actually. I think we just, it was just sort of picking people. It's like you and, do you want to come do it? Um, there was some resistance, actually. I can remember in one of the very early ones, uh, one of the brilliant improvisers, Craig, who's also a comedian, coming up to me and saying, um, no, I, I, I don't think I can do this. I don't want to do this. I just, I just, I just want to be funny. I want to, you know, I like the games. I like the games. Um, I can't, I can't do a whole narrative. I can't do a whole beginning to end. And now, of course, he's, he's like, oh, I love narrative. I love it. <laughs> and he's brilliant at it, of course. It's always the people who doubt themselves who turn out to be bloody brilliant really quickly. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's been quite a journey from playing games where we all start to trying to tell a beginning, middle and an end with a beautifully reincorporated finale with a flourish, a spin and a bow. I think that's definitely the hardest bit. So what's the secret of doing narrative? I think, okay, I can tell you my secret. Um, It's the beginning. It's absolutely how you start. And um, it's the thing we 100% work the hardest on, the beginning of scenes. So we've come up with, um, we have a traffic light system, green, amber, red. A green scene is nothing is a problem. This is the status quo. No matter, um, no matter where you are or what you're doing or what is happening in the scene, this is just normal. And it's really important to create strong characters, to create really good physical locations. So in your first scene, you should be touching your world. Hmm. So that when we come back to that location, everybody knows there's a tap in the left-hand side and everybody knows there's a fireplace on the right-hand side. You just know you see it. And you know your character because you've spent so long in the green scene. 
you spent a long time just building them up to be fully rounded characters. And I think if you do well at the beginning, mm. you've built a wonderful playground. And from the wonderful playground, you can just play. Mm. That's really interesting. You've got uh, uh, the way in which you've described it as a green scene. Mm. That's really interesting. I like that. Too. Yeah, green. We set a lot of green scenes. Um, oh, is this a green scene? We're doing green scenes. Right, no problems, no problem. My favourite thing in green scenes is when someone comes in with a problem. So someone <laughs> will always come in with a problem and it will be something like, um, John, you're late again. To which the improviser will go, oh, no, am I? And the other person will go, oh, I just created a problem. And they will solve it by saying, but it's not a problem because I've set up for you. Oh, you are good. You always set up for me. I know. And you're always late. And straight away you've solved, it's not a problem. This is just normal. These are two people. One always covers for the other, but it's not a problem. This is the status quo. Later on, when you move to Amber, something might happen that makes that lateness a problem. Yes. And that's when plot begins, and that's when you can expand your world. But for me, narrative is all about the beginnings, because if your beginnings are strong, your characters are great, and your locations are really clear, you just can't go wrong. So are you taking a suggestion from the audience? Um, it depends what show we do. We have different shows. Um, for the Dickens, oh gosh, let's see if I can remember. We have, I think we take th three suggestions. We get a location. We get a secret that you might have had, um, which usually turns out to be something like um, you had a child. So we sometimes have to think, get clever about our ask boards. And then we, and then we ask, when we've got all of that, then we ask for a title. Right. So we give the audience plenty of time, and then we get a title before we start. Um, and audiences don't disappoint. Like my favourite title for a Dickens was Barren Times. Uh, Clever, but it was based on a character who was called Baron Baron Times. Yes, nice. Yeah, we didn't think of that. The audience <laughs> did, but you know. Yeah. Um, so for that one, we do get suggestions. Um, for oh, for an improvised murder, um, the audience pick who gets killed, and they pick the murderer. Right. And they get to interrogate at about the halfway point when someone's been murdered. The audience get to ask questions of all the suspects. Even um, though they know who did it, well, who done it, who done it, they don't know because at the halfway point they say who gets murdered, so they oh, shout out. Oh, right, okay, then they yeah, interrogate yeah. the suspects, and then right at the end they shout out who's the actual murderer. Right. Wow. And I have the first time we ever did it, someone walked out of the theatre and came up to me and said, "Did you all? Did you all have to prepare your your speech that you were going to give? You know, <laughs> did, did you prepared it?" And I was thinking. Well, no, we couldn't possibly because we don't we don't know what the show's going to be. We can't. <laughs> I can't prepare an alibi when I don't know at the beginning who's going to die or where we're going to set it or what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, that's you know, that's it's the bane. <laughs> no. It's the bane of an improviser's life. Did you prepare that bit? No. <laughs> no. Take it as a compliment. Yes. Say thank you and then move on. Uh, so, you, so because you've got various shows, so. You have various different ways of getting suggestions from the audience. And then you move into these green scenes. Mm -hmm. How many, do you predetermine how many green scenes you have? Or do you sort of mutually agree it as you're doing it? And if so, how do you communicate that? Uh, we've sort of just known now. It's very organic. It just happens. Um, for the murder mystery, everybody will go on once and they must do a green scene. So the first time any, any of us are on stage, it has to be a green scene. 
because we don't know anything about them. Yeah. So we have to work really hard to go deep into the character rather than going forward with the plot. Yeah. Um, and usually there may be a second green scene, maybe. But we sort of you start to feel it because we've done the show so many times now. Um, and you can sort of tell as soon as someone gets a question like, well, what did you do that for? I can't believe that you've left me in the lurch by being late again. And you now know that that's Amber. Right. Because suddenly something's changed. The status quo has been, we're out of balance, we're out of kilter. Yeah. We're moving through the plot. So how many Amber scenes would you have? Again, well, it, depends on the sh- it depends on the length of the show. So we do a murder mystery as an hour, but we also do it as a full-length show. So if it's a full-length show, at the interval, somebody dies. Right. So it's a sort of... There isn't a specific number. You sort of feel it based on the length of time you've got. Um, you do sometimes see me on the side of the stage sort of putting my fingers across my throat as if to say, this is the last scene before the interval. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at that point, you know, people will probably ramp up a little bit because they know someone's about to be murdered. But because we've been together for five years, we just sort of know now. Yeah. You feel it. Yeah. Um, so then, so would you say the last scene before the interval, is that still amber or have we moved into red? Um, if someone's been murdered, then we're in red. Because right. at that point, it's like all out. Right. And when, you, when you're in the murder mystery and you're doing the red scene, it's about, I've got to have a reason to dislike people. Right. Or I've got to be really, really allied with someone. Right. So I'm either I either love you or I hate you. I either totally love you, in which case I might murder for you, uh, or I totally hate you because of something you might have done that could give me a motivation to want to kill you. Wow. Yeah. That sounds. I don't know if that sounds hard. I think that sounds hard to bring into a scene. Well, because if you've done your green well and then you've slowly moved into amber, so we've got a small rift. Let's say I lent you a thousand pounds once. And you never paid it back. I spent it all on uh, podcasting equipment. <laughs> you spent it all on equipment. Now maybe I come and want to borrow that equipment, and you say no, and suddenly that amber, that little, that tiny little rift has got a bit bigger because I lent you the money, and now you, you're not even letting me. Yeah. So we, as a an improv pair, we go. How do we tap that further? I mean, you're very perceptive of my uh, character. <laughs> I have to say, it's uh, very much how I roll. <laughs> Yeah, so we've got so we've got that. It's is conflict, or it's would you describe it as conflict? Yeah, I think once you move into to red, you're totally on conflict. Right. Yeah, I'm angry that you didn't lend it to me, and there'll there'll be another reason. There'll be something on top of that that has affected me. Maybe I didn't get the promotion because I promised I was, I promised my boss that I would bring this equipment in. So now it's not just the loan; it's the fact you wouldn't let me in the equipment, and I got fired because my boss. It was this big event got ruined, so suddenly this small thing is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, um, and now I really hate you. That's fair enough. Stuart. Yeah, that's fair enough. I sound really bad. Weirdly, I quite like that. <laughs> so, uh, so you're going to murder me, and... Well, I'm not. The audience is going to pick who gets murdered. Right. So how does the murder take place? Um, well, you just hear a scream and a blackout. Ah, nice. Okay. Yeah. I was... I was imagining all sorts of stage combat, all sort of... Well, we have done... So I, I am actually an advanced practitioner in stage combat. So we have uh, done a few teaching people punches and slaps. Right. Which I have to say we tend not to use very right. often. But one good one is sort of, you know, one good... <laughs> ow, 
yeah, I can really. <laughs> ow, ow, stop <laughs> hitting me. It really hurt. Ow, ow. Oh. You deserve that. Well, that stays true. Yeah. I've done some terrible things. <laughs> um, so we've gone to blackouts about the interval. How do you then come back from that? Um, so we actually do the morning after. Yeah, so we right. find out how people react to the fact that someone's dead. Yeah. So that in itself can be very telling. Yes. Mm. Are you pleased? Do you say, I'm so glad he's dead? Or are you, I can't believe he's dead, you know? And these are, these are amber scenes? No, no. Well, at this point, we've done it. We've done the green, amber, red. Oh, right. So that's... It's, it's weird, because when we do normal narrative, like, say, or what the Dickens... Um, Green, amber, red just means plot. It doesn't necessarily mean bad. Whereas when you do the murder mystery, red means people must hate you. People must either hate you or people must love you. People must be prepared to kill for you or kill you. Um, so at the interval, we've finished that. Right. Now we're moving on to... I have to say, the second half of our murder mystery is a little bit format-heavy in that you um, have an interrogation. Ah, uh, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, the interrogation we also use as a device sometimes. If you and I have never had a scene together and the audience asks you a question, and I've been the, let's say the audience called out for me to be murdered. You get asked a question, um, did you like her? Well, you've never done a scene with me, so that's going to be problematic. So we have this sneaky device called, ah, yes, I remember the last time I saw her. Cue flashback. Oh, and now you get the opportunity to create something oh, between that's us. Beautiful. Yeah. That's really, really cool. Um, and that's quite nice. Uh, and also, when the audience asks you questions in an interrogation, we yes and them, yes and them, and yes and them hard. Yeah. So if they say, "Did you have a dog?" <laughs> you have to yes and them, but you somehow have to make it relevant because <laughs> that audience member is going to feel really clever for asking what seemed like a totally innocuous question. Do you have a dog? Yes. And the night that she was murdered, I was taking my dog for a walk past the hairdressers which was where she was murdered, you know. So yeah, yeah. You're, you're like, I knew it. I knew he was near. I knew. <laughs> and of course, until five seconds ago, you never even heard of this dog, you know. That's brilliant. That sounds really exciting. Uh, so the audience gets to interrogate the characters. And then how... Oh, so... And then the audience get to choose who done it. So, yeah. So there will do, there'll be an interrogation and then we do a few more scenes. And we continue... We sort of play out from what the audience have given us and then maybe sort of 10 20 minutes later we stop again and we get one last chance so everyone does the yes it's true but so you kind of go yes it's true she was blackmailing me and yes it's true i didn't let her borrow the stereo equipment but i couldn't have killed her because i loved her more than anything in the world i couldn't have been me so we get one last chance and then the audience decide Excellent. Who actually was the murderer. <laughs> and then we play out the murder scene. Oh. So at that moment you actually see it. So that happens. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's really good. It's the first, I think we've done it, I did actually count up, we've done it more than ten times now. And the first time we did it, honestly, honestly, we were all at the side of the stage going, what the, where are we? What's happening? <laughs> Do I like you now? Where? What's going on? Because it's such a brain fuck yeah. where are we at but now again we're used to doing it we know that you know I've got to really hate you or love you I've got to think of good reasons to do a flashback if I haven't had a scene with someone mm. oh, that sounds amazing so 
tutorize the format. Yeah, um, someone you've had on your podcast, Nick, Nick Hollingsworth. Oh, yes. He does um, LARPing, I think, is it? Right. Um, is it LARPing? What's the, the thing where you have like little books and you you read things out and then people... Yeah. Uh, I like call that tabletop role-playing. Oh, I think that's what it is. Um, tabletop role-playing. Although I did describe that to somebody recently and they thought that we played standing oh. on the table, <laughs> on the top of the table, which was an amazing image. It was not true. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so it's like Dungeons and Dragons and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, but it's told around a table um, rather than live action role playing, which is LARPing, which is moving into a Right, LARP, different thing, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was with him that we first came up with the concept, the first came up with the idea. Um, and it's sort of, it's just evolved over the years to be, it's, it's very simple. We know what we do in the first half, we know what we do in the second half, and pretty much... Um, it, it flows naturally now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're used to it. And what what attracted you to doing the murder mystery genre? Well, when we first started in 2012, we did one show a month, and I mean, because I'd come come at it as a theatre director, I thought, like some naive, crazy lunatic, <laughs> you had to do a different show every month. All the audiences were. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Or the audiences wouldn't come oh, back. That I was know. the laughter of supportiveness. Sorry, I know. Oh, wow. So we did, I sort of started going back through them. We started with games. Then the first one we did was called Right Up Your Street, which is a soap opera. Then we did one called The Made Up History Channel. Then we did one called This Has Been a Party Political Broadcast on Behalf of Foghorn. Then we did a movie makeover. Then we, <laughs> then we did a murder mystery. Wow. So, and, and on the way, obviously, we dropped some. So the political one was a bit of a a damp squib and so was the made up history channel and then we sort of stopped started dropping them off and and building hey let's try and build one show and make it good rather than try and build 12 shows a year and kill ourselves wow yeah i mean I, I'm, I'm actually no it is nuts but it's also quite a quite amazing and i do sort of admire the creativity and the thrust to go into that and the energy it, it keeps you on your toes. Yeah. Um, Joan Littlewood, who's this theatre director that I was uh, just, you know, my hero, she used to hide props when people were doing plays. Oh, really? And the reason she would hide the props is she didn't want people to come complacent. Yeah, yeah, so they'd yeah. always be hunting around and they'd go, I've got to go back on, I've got to go back on, where's my prop? And she'd be standing there laughing at them <laughs> to keep the performance fresh. And I think the fact we never really knew what was going on always meant we you know, we were fresh. I think I think you could safely say we were fresh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so you did you did the murder mystery one, and it just felt more successful. Or yeah, it was. It felt more successful. It felt like um, it was the first time we'd done one where we thought that's a proper full show. Yeah, right. It's not sort of bits and pieces that don't really hang together. It's a proper from start to finish show. Um, and people who. People who saw the first one were like, "That's brilliant! I don't know how you did that." <laughs> and so you thought, "Yeah, we've got something now. We've we've actually got something that we should build on." Yeah, cool. Um, you also do uh, what the Dickens, which yeah. you mentioned. Yes. So is that because of your long and abiding love for Charles Dickens? Yeah, I don't know where that idea came from. So because uh, sorry to interrupt. Go. Uh, if you were to do Jane Austen, <laughs> I know it's been done, <laughs> but Boston Austen. Oh. <gasps> Oh, that's good. You see, that's a reason just to do it. <laughs> Austin, Austin. But you'd have to do it with, I was going to say you'd have to do it with Brummie accents, but I'm not sure Jane Austen would have had Brummie accents. Well, the way I read her, she definitely does. I but that might just be my. Austin. 
<laughs> Brummy modern Austin. It's sort of there, isn't it? <laughs> it's right in it itself. <laughs> Sorry, tell me about your lover. Uh, well, the, well, because we were doing so many shows, people could pitch ideas and they would sort of run them. And obviously, I think it was Matt pitched it. And I think there were loads of us like, oh, God, that's going to be awful. <laughs> but then you realise that it's almost made for improv because of the type of names he picks. Yes. And the characters, you know, you'll have a big bumbling fool and he'll be called Mr. Bumble, you know, <laughs> or Grad Grind. Um, it, it's, it's actually very, it's, it's a lovely, joyous, playful thing to do, to create character names yes. um, and to create very strong, almost almost stereotypical characters, you know, like the, the thin, tall, nasty miser. Um, and, and actually, the more we've done it, the more we've fallen in love with it, the more we've gone, this is, this is great, it, it, it's perfect. Yeah. And also, the way in which he was writing them to deadline, every month, there's a lot of things in there that you think, you were just making this up as you went along. Totally. We've actually had to read them, that's been the hard bit. <laughs> and some of them, blooming it. it doesn't half go on. <laughs> So like, get to the point. <laughs> oh, it's serialised, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah get your away. word count. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So if you're doing a show called What the Dickens, how much research do you do? How Dickensian do you try and make it? Mm. Um, and, you know, do you try and do lots of Dickensian things to appeal to the hardcore Dickensians that come... And do you risk alienating those that are less? I, I don't. I don't think we've ever had anyone come and critique our Dickensianness. Uh, I think they they know they're coming to a comedy show, but we we've certainly between us um, read at least the pricey of every single one of them, <laughs> um, or watched. Uh, Aaron is particularly good at watching the BBC serials, uh, so he'll watch them. Uh, no, we have been through them all. Um, I spend a lot of time just before shows listening to them on a on like on an audible or something like ah. that. So get get through a whole a whole one so I can actually talk with a position of authority. Unlike the first time we performed it, where I was thinking I haven't got a clue. I had to do what was it? Hard times is the only one I knew. I think, um, but yeah, Spot. enough. We do enough yeah, yeah, yeah. to keep people happy, but not too much that. People would only would actually think we know what we're doing. <laughs> I, I just can't imagine what the show would be like if you knew so much that it you couldn't do a, an authentic Dickens because you, you know because the the shows would be ten hours twenty hours long. <laughs> but then I was thinking, well, no, but Dickens did go around performing his own, you know, readings of yeah. So I don't know. I think I think if you really knew your Dickens, your creativity would almost be stifled. There'd be too much to pick from, wouldn't there? You'd yes. be you'd be constantly second guessing yourself. So you're never tempted to put in sort of sneaky Dickens Easter eggs for the hardcore Dickens fans in the we audience. We have done. We occasionally have done, and it's never been me that's done it. <laughs> but occasionally I have been on the sidelines going, "That's very clever." <laughs> I mean, no one's laughed. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah, that right. was very clever. Uh, I wish I'd done that. Gosh, yeah, smarty, smarty yeah. pants. What's it, uh, what sort of what sort of thing? Uh, oh God, no! Don't put me on the spot. <laughs> um, oh gosh, no, I can't remember at all. Because uh, I'd be tempted to weave in the performance into the chronology of some existing books. 
Oh, blimey. Um, I'm trying to think that of the one. I, no, no, my brain's gone blank. I can't remember. There was something from Dombey and Son that someone did. Oh, Dombey and Son. Yeah. Oh. Um, that old. I, I know exactly that old. That old no. famous one. Dombey and Son. Um, and I remember thinking afterwards, "Wow, gosh, yeah, you actually read that book, didn't you?" <laughs> I'm going to put it into an improv show, whether you like it or not, whether it fits or not. Um, I'm not even sure what happens in Dombey and Son. He has a girl, doesn't he? Doesn't he have a boy and a girl, and the boy dies, and then he's all upset because he doesn't want a girl; he wants a boy. Oh. Yeah. Dombey and Dead Son. Oh, me. That's uh, hashtag yeah. spoilers. <laughs> yes, yes. Sorry if you've uh, <laughs> if you were looking. <laughs> well, actually, uh, <laughs> dear Improv London podcast, <laughs> I was looking forward to sitting down with Dombey and Son this weekend. However, I listened to your latest episode. It was very fine in every other respect, but I fear totally ruined it. Just Dombey's Son dying near the beginning. I mean, that's. And by the beginning, that can be the first 200 <laughs> pages in a Dickens book, so it's probably right. Oh, I think he dies about, oh, about halfway through, maybe. Never mind. Mm. Uh, so, um, uh, yes, and, and you'll do another another show called Absurdly Fabulous? Yes. That What's was, that based that, on? Well, yeah, can you guess? So that's an ab fab, uh, an improvised ab, ab fab, yeah. What was the attraction of doing that? Well, I can tell you the story behind this. So um, me, Claire and Aaron went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as Yumi and Monkey, and we did a show which was genius, genius, called I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day, <laughs> which consisted of us wearing Christmas jumpers. <laughs> and I can remember the, the hottest day of the year, anywhere in the ni- in the United Kingdom and we were wearing Christmas jumpers handing out flies and we also we're not doing this game this is stupid I don't know what we were thinking <laughs> I so, don't know what you were thinking no. what were you thinking well even now I'm not, I'm not it's look it's quirky yeah you've got to get you've got to get people to pay attention to you so Christmas in August oh, this is stupid I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry Claire I'm sorry Aaron so we just looked at the three of us and said what could we do well um, and Claire likes a drink. Well, actually, she doesn't now. She's a yoga teacher. She's she's Claire is super clean living now. I wow. she's my she's my inspiration. Um, <laughs> so she thought she could play Patsy. I'm very I hesitate to say the word, but I'm going to say it bossy and opinionated. So they thought I could be Safi. And Aaron is his knowledge of pop culture is second to none. I there is no one who knows more about fashion and the latest celebrities than Aaron. So obviously he would play Edwina. We just came up with the idea, and then when we came back, um, well, we did that thing that you do, which is where you take publicity shots <laughs> before having even thought about how you're going to do the improv. <laughs> so we took publicity shots, and then it sort of had to happen after that. <laughs> yeah. So were you, so you were obviously all fans of the program yes, before, so it wasn't a case of you need to sit down, perhaps in the way you did with Dickens, and work out what happens in an absolutely fabulous episode. Um, This is our how you do it in three steps. One, you take a cat, you put the cat up the tree, you throw stones at the cat, you bring the cat back down the tree. Uh That's an episode. You start with something, you make it bad, you make it worse, and you go back to the beginning. That's pretty much the plot. Wow. Mm. You make narrative seem simple. 
secretly, I think narrative is simple, and I don't know what everyone's complaining about anyway. So when you do the absurdly fabulous show, um, are you what are you asking? The, were you asking the audience for anything? What yes, yes. So they give us one word, and that one word will be the start of the show. Um, just like in a, a single word right at the beginning, they had fashion, fat, France, and all these things at the beginning. So we pick one word, and that's the title of the show. And then we have other things. So we have um, objects. So we have three bowls. Objects, um, which Bubble will attempt without using the word written down will attempt, will attempt at some point in the show to describe to Eddie. Right. Oh, oh, it's a thing. It's a really big, <laughs> you know, the thing. And so that always gets a laugh because they recognise it. Um, then we'll have um, a secret or an achievement, something like that. And that's given to Safi. And Safi will give that to her. She, she will tell her mum, I've got something to tell you. And then um, a put down. Or... Uh, which we give to um, Patsy, and Patsy will use the put-downs at various yeah. points through the show. So we do that. Um, we also take pictures of the audience on the way in, <laughs> and then at the beginning of the second half, we take some of those pictures and use them as magazine covers. Wow. So we get a little bit of a, a, little bit of a sort of, the audience see themselves up on the big screen and we, their magazine covers. Yeah. Wow, that sounds hard. That, yeah. Actually, I think that's the bit that Aaron is amazing at. Um, he just looks at the picture and has something funny to say like that about them. And we all pitch in, obviously, because there's loads of people on stage, so anyone yeah, can yeah, say yeah. things. Um, but usually a theme has come up, like in the very first one we did, the word we got was cocoa. Right. And so, of course, Edwina decides she's going to buy a cocoa plantation in South America. Um, and, of course, it ends up she buys drugs, so of course. Um, but the magazine, the front cover of the magazine was them selling cocoa, so all these people sort of saw themselves on the front of the magazine with cocoa across. So you just find ways to incorporate the picture and chocolate or cocoa or you know, whatever, it, something like that. So what was the physical process of taking the photos and then getting projecting them on, on a, as a magazine onto a screen? So we take them against a green screen. So as they come in, they're taken against a green screen. Wow. And then we've got a little bit of a little program yeah. that just gets rid of the green screen and replaces random backgrounds. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and you would do that before the show starts? No, I do that at the interval. I do the interval. So whilst the others in the interval are having a chat about, I am frantically running around with an SD card trying to plug it into the computer going what's a good title for the magazine what's, you know 15 minutes sometimes they're the wrong way round and you're going rotate rotate put them on <laughs> run to the tech box give them to the tech guy put them on the computer check they're working run back okay let's start act two <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but then it does give you a big lift you know. oh, it's, what an opening it's, it's a great opening to act two it definitely it lifts yeah. and also my favourite thing about a show with an interval people have a drink at the interval ah. my f it's, I love it the people come back with an interval drink inside them they're a whole new audience yeah. and I also feel that you know given the programme involved that that feels part, oh, of the, part of the performance body oh, yeah we always we, we usually have a bottle that we will open on stage as well you'll drink on stage yeah wow yeah hardcore is that not dangerous for the art <laughs> does that not make it harder well, you have a sip, you know. I can't at that point. I don't think the alcohol is pushing me any further than the adrenaline, you know. So you have another another show called a haunting experience. This is crazy, right? This is nuts. This is genuinely, seriously, the most crazy improv thing I have ever done in my life. Um, 
Winterbourne House and Gardens, which is a beautiful country house, uh, asked us if we would do a kind of haunting show with them. Wow. So we decided we would do four stories in four separate rooms happening at the same time. Yeah, and the audience are in groups of 15 and they go through each room. So they go 15 minutes in one room, 15 minutes in another, 15 minutes in a third, 15 minutes in a fourth. They move rooms and they follow one story. We also move rooms and we move stories. So you would sometimes start on one story, move into another room where the story had already started and you would have to catch up very quickly in the second 15 minutes to work out what was happening. So how would you know, if you'd been in the first room and you moved to the second room, how would you know what the story was in the second room? You, we had about 20 seconds before the audience came in to just go, right, your name's Mary and you're a servant and I'm, gonna, I'm the bad guy. Um, and I'm dead or I'm a ghost or I'm a... Yeah. So the audience that have come with you from the first room to the second room, they haven't seen the first part of the second room story either because they were with you in the first room. So in the first room, they got the beginning of their story. They move to the second room and they're going to see the second part of their story. But the fact is, I'm now in the second room and I have no idea what happened in the first room. So the audience see lots of different people, Yes. but we move storylines, so we have to catch up. Yeah, it was as much of a head fuck as it sounds. I'm not getting this at all. No. So, <laughs> so we have room one. Yes. That starts a story. <clears throat> yes. Let's say, Dickensian. Well, they're all because it was set in a country manor. It was all set at the turn of the century, okay. so it was sort of 1900s. So maybe we see the servants in that room. So there will be two people in the room, yeah. and in the first one, they we did a sort of séance style. Right. So a name came out of it, and maybe we tried to frighten the audience. So it's it's mostly pitch black little candles coming on off and things like that so maybe a name will be mentioned and maybe the ghost wants to get revenge so you'll hear the name katie katie revenge katie and then i'm not in that room i'm in a completely different room and then i will come into the second room and and the other improviser will run into the room and say your name's katie and run out again (laughs) right okay and then so in the second room for example is a bedroom but this is my story because each of us had different rooms that we went through in the second room I was always in the bedroom and so I would start I let's say I'm locked in the room why won't he let me out why won't he let me out and so the audience are watching me trying to get out and then an improviser who was in the first scene will then come in and he'll start telling me things through the through the medium of story and talking Katie you must settle down now you mustn't be bad like you were last time you're going okay I was bad last time you know or I won't let you out of the servant's quarters. Okay, I'm a servant. So it's like the most complicated guessing game ever. So there will be people from the first room, performers, improvisers from the first room, who will come into the second room, and what they tell you stuff before the scene starts, or they come in and they improvise. They, we with had about you. twenty seconds. Right. Okay. Before the audience came in. So they would usually give me a name. Right, okay. <laughs> that's what you'd go on. And, you know, you're locked in a room and that's your name and that's all you know. Um. <clears throat> so this <coughs> was... Yes. 
so it's kind of a there's we're not following a story in a linear way or the audience are seeing different aspects of the story and they sort of piece it together I guess for the audience if you followed one story you've come into a room where the seance has been held and you've heard about the ghosts so you've heard there was there's some ghost who wants to get revenge for Katie. Then you move into the second room and you're sort of seeing almost like a flashback in time. Right. So you're seeing what might have happened in 1900 yes. to poor Katie. Yes. Then you go to the third scene and you'll see probably something more about Katie and some new character that you haven't seen. And then you go back to the beginning. Well, you go back to the two people you started with and hopefully there's some form of resolution. So that person will come back and say to the audience, did you see the ghosts? Did you hear the story? What, what, what happened? I don't know, because I've never seen the ghost myself. And so, the, again, the performer in the last room is going, tell me what happened, tell me what happened, because I haven't got a clue. You know, the audience <laughs> will say, oh, we saw Katie. <gasps> Did you get revenge for Katie? You know, things like this. Wow. Yeah. That sounds really complicated. It, it sounds amazing. I think it was, yeah, I think it was probably more amazing for the audience who were following one story. Yes. For us... All of us were in two stories, so you were always moving between stories. Oh. I know. But it's in terms of keeping you on your toes. Yes, there is that. And it must have been fun improvising in a, that sort of location. Oh, it's amazing. Well, also, when you're meant to be scared and tied to a bed and there's a candle and you're, you know, you have a character stomping in and saying, shut your mouth or I'll let you have it again, Katie, and you're in a kind of Victorian yeah. dress and it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it must be much... Well, you're having to do less work and you can just react honestly. Yeah, you don't have... Yeah, there's no object work. Well, there is, but it's real objects. (laughs) (laughs) See this bed here? I'm touching. It's a real bed. (laughs) Um, So how many... How how long did you do that? One night or So we did two... two, We did four performances. So we obviously got much better at it. But we did... um, The day before we started, we did one full run-through with with just two stories going on oh, yeah. so that we could sort of see how it worked. Um, so by the end, we were quite good at it. I think we'd we'd worked out what works and what doesn't. You can't make the story uncomplicated. You have to keep it super, super simple um, and make the audience feel like they're, they're seeing something that no one else has seen yeah. so that when they come back to the end, they will talk about it yeah. that, makes, that enables you to create an ending. Did you get the idea that these were people you'd never seen improvised theatre before quite a lot of them were because a a lot of them came to see anything that was on a Winterbourne house they were sort of lovers of the house and gardens so I think some of them were probably going what what was that Um, uh, and in a good way I'm sure what just happened I once went to see a Sherlock Holmes exhibition uh, in Croydon uh, the clock tower and I don't think I was working at that point so I went at the 9.30, um, you know, when it opened on a weekday or something like that. What, in the morning? In the morning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of person. Um, and uh, I went round and it was, you know, we had to solve the clues and everything. And uh, we got to the end and we had to knock on the consulting detective's door and we were let in. <laughs> and then there were these two people, two actors, playing Holmes and Watson, uh, which was fine. Apart from the fact that that time of day, there was only me and this <laughs> pensioner um, who came in with me. 
and who left halfway through because she wanted to go and find her friend. So these two guys, I mean, you know, bless them, we went through the whole thing with just me. That's actors, isn't it? That's an act. That is genuinely an actor's life. That is, uh, is the absolute perfect metaphor for an actor's life. There's one person in the room. We're damn well giving them the best performance. We're not stopping. Yeah. I mean, I was really engaged with the story and, and doing my best to get involved. So it wasn't like I was in any way trying to block them. But I was like, oh, God bless you guys. Aww. It's a bit like Edinburgh, isn't it? You know, performing to one person. I mean, even if the audience is smaller than the cast still stage time you go on yeah exactly <laughs> uh so, you, so you've, you've played edinburgh a couple of times yes uh three I've t- i mean years and years ago i took my own show but maybe five five times yeah what's your tips for edinburgh success uh honestly yes don't go i i don't see a point in it um we've just i think if you if you think you're going to go and you want to make it, I think you really have to go full out with marketing. I think you have to be seen. Um, the show that we took, the You, Me and Monkey show, I wish it could be Christmas every day, we didn't get one single review. And you just think, you're doing the whole of Edinburgh and not one person comes, one review, because that's really why you're doing it. Yeah. You want to get a good review. Um, why not sell out in your hometown? Um, I guess it's different in London, but in Birmingham we could do a monthly show and sell out every month. Yeah. So what am I gaining? Yeah. Other than maybe the review, and I guess that's really important if you want a career like a, a, as a professional comedian or you you want to get booked to tour the country or, or something like that maybe. Um, but there's so many shows now. There's too many shows. Yeah. There's too, too much competition and the prices are so expensive to hire theatres now. Yeah. And some of the free venues, I mean, you, you, you pot luck. Some of the free venues are amazing. And some of the free venues are absolutely dire when you can hear next door's billiards game louder than you can hear the comedian <laughs> on stage. You think, hmm. So that's my tip. Not, not what you wanted? <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, that's, you know, uh, I've never played Edinburgh. I, I don't, well... I don't think I have a burning desire to, but then I don't have a burning desire to have a career in comedy. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's what do you want to get out of it? Before you go to Edinburgh, what do you want to get out of it? If you want fame, then I guess go all out and just risk bankrupting yourself to get noticed and your show better be good. It better be good. Yeah. Um, So maybe we could talk more generally about the scene in in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. What are the advantages of being in Birmingham compared to being in London? Or I think some of the things that we do in Birmingham are possibly a little more innovative because we have we have to be. You know, yeah. we have we have to be a bit more exciting because um, we don't have the improv scene, so we're not going to get improvisers to come see us. Well, I mean, we are, but they're only going to make up a small number of the audience. So I think some of the stuff we've done is happening almost almost in a bubble so that we're not influenced by other people. Yeah. I think certainly with Foghorn's shows that we've done so at Winterbourne, they're totally unique because we haven't got any other improv around us, so we're being influenced by ourselves. Yes. I think that's really interesting because I've seen acts, um, teams, 
and I've seen them when they've started and they've been a little bit unpolished, but there's been something uniquely them about them um, that far, for me, outweighs any technical issues. And then yes. they'll they'll be coached by somebody and I'm like, oh yeah, I've been coached by that person as well and that person is brilliant. But now that team that had this individuality are now doing that move because they've learned it from that yes. person. Yes. So I don't know. Yeah. I think we have to be much more self-reliant. So uh, uh, I think a lot of my knowledge comes from podcasts, you know, podcasts and books. Um, I'm a nut for all of that stuff. <laughs> and I've been following your podcast for a long time and I think it's brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you're on my list with um, Kevin Mullaney's Improv Resource Centre and Yes Bot, which I loved, and also Zenprov. Oh, yeah, yeah, Which yeah, I enjoyed, yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. they've stopped recently. Well, actually, I don't think Kevin Mullaney's put any out for a while. Um, so we sort of have to go out there and find stuff ourselves and work on work on it without perhaps the strength of the coaches that you might have in London, which produces different stuff. Yes. Not 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 necessarily polished, but different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when I came up to the uh, Birmingham Improv Festival last year, it was thrilling to me for me because there were all these new acts that yeah. I hadn't seen yeah. and I didn't know the people involved and they could do anything. <laughs> and, you know, much as I love seeing the people that I love seeing, you sort of get to know the sort of things that they do. But I was like, this could be anything. This is very exciting. Mm. Um, so uh, when you're on the stage um, performing in uh, Folklore and Unscripted, um, do you like to endow... Are you the people you're playing with with gifts, or do you like to mess with them, or is it the same thing? <laughs> oh, deep at the end there. The <laughs> I'd say um, it depends where you are in the show. I'd say at the beginning, gift them, and at the end, fuck with them. <laughs> you, you want more? Yes. <laughs> well, because at the beginning, support them, give them something they can really turn into a character. Yeah. And once they've this goes back to my green scene thing, right? Yeah. Green scenes, nothing's a problem. Build a status quo, build characters. But once you know who your character is, I'm going to fuck with you. <laughs> good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> we should all do that. Okay. Uh, big final question, uh, which as you've listened to this before, you will know. But anyway, um, what's your signature move? Oh, my signature move. I think, oh, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a bit polyplot. Um, I think in the group, Foghorn, I'm the one who's always most aware of the structure, the story structure. So I do think that occasionally, and it's not a good thing, I am the person who will come on and, and just say something awfully, awfully plot heavy that will just explain something. That is the um, plot alarm that is going off. It's saying it's stop it. Too much plot. Too much plot. Yeah, polyplot. That's, that's my bad signature move. Um, have more faith and trust we're going to get to the end yes. you don't necessarily need to come on and go why you must be the son <laughs> of the man who has just died and therefore this inheritance is yours and it's everyone on stage is going yeah kit we know thanks well done i uh, see i i'm going to come to your defense there in that sometimes as an audience member i just need stuff explained or just stated because then we all know where we are Say, know, and care. Say it, yes. know stuff, don't ask questions, and care about things. Yeah, totally. Say it. Sometimes you just have to say it. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, subtext is really, really hard <laughs> to do in improv. Because it just is. It's, you know, don't, don't do that. Yeah. 
Thank you. Thank you for supporting me. That's all right. That's improv. <laughs> Uh, and all right, let's have one more question. Um, what would you like the future to hold for you? <laughs> for you, uh, in improv, in what? What do you want to be better at? What I don't know. I love narrative improv. I love it. I love it. Love it. But I still think we've yet to do the perfect show. You know, one where you just get to the end and you go, my God damn it, we reincorporated the motherfucker out of that and that show could not have been any more perfect. There was no superfluous stuff. We nailed it. Um, that will never happen, right? No. But that's my dream. That sounds a good dream. Thank you very much for coming on the Improv London podcast. Thank you for having me. That it's was been really lovely. Good. Thank you. I made this. That's improv! <laughs>